church. It's the people. So what did Jesus do to build his church? He added people to it? Yeah, he called people to be his people. When did Jesus build his church? When did he finish it? He hasn't. Yeah. If you understand that building his church means bringing people to him, then this is a continuing process that will happen as long as people are being converted. We are the living stones, according to 1 Peter 2, that are being built up into a spiritual house for God. So don't think of the church as something Jesus built up in heaven and shipped down to us, but as the people of God being built into his dwelling place. Now, people have really different ideas about the last part of verse 18. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. One thing you might consider is that the word Hades, or some of your translations say hell here, is not the word for eternal hell. It's a word that commonly means death, or sometimes the place where dead spirits go. So what does it mean when it says the gates of Hades or the gates of death will not overpower it? Is the same word as Sheol in the Old Testament? Well, it's not the same word, obviously, because it's different languages. Okay. But yeah, it's the same concept. Okay. So what would that mean? The death, uh, or the uh, gates of, of Hades, the gates of death, will not overpower it. Will not overpower what? The church? Could be. If it means the gates of death will not overpower the church, then it means death cannot defeat God's people. They'll be raised. That's not the only option, though. What else might the it mean? The confession. Well, I don't know what the confession... Let me read this whole again. I also say to you that you're Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What else could the it mean? How about this one? Could he mean that the gates of death would not stop Jesus from building his church? That he would burst the bars of death and would bring together his people despite his crucifixion. Death isn't going to stop him from building his church. I think that might even be a stronger view, though I don't know that it makes a lot of difference. You know, you have the Christ, the Son of the living God, versus the gates of death. Guess who's going to win? It's not going to be the gates of death. So I think, I think Jesus is saying, you know, I am going to bring my people together and death won't stop me from doing that. Comments and thoughts about that? So should this have told them that he was going to die? Well, he's been telling them straight up that he was going right. to die, like in the very next section. But should this have been another clue? Perhaps. Yeah, there's a lot of things Jesus says 
that, if you look at it carefully, would hint at his death. This would be one of those things. But he'll just tell them in very plain, explicit terms, and they still don't accept it, so don't imagine they'll pick up on the clues. In verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, and goes on to say that he's going to die. Would that be alluding to, like, how she said here he's saying, that he died and he's like opening up the field here and then he's going to bring it into that from that time on he just keeps on bringing well, it up. I think Jesus has this time period where he starts really explicitly talking about you know his death. He has talked about it in some senses before. Like what about when he said in John 2 destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. He really was talking about his death but he didn't do it in such clear terms. As in these last few months of his life, he just starts saying it very plainly. So I think he does shift into really telling them in so many words, I'm going to die. So we're in the last few months? Yes. I have a hard time keeping track of Well, and the Gospels are not chronological either. So we all have a hard time figuring that out. But it looks to me like when we put all the evidence together that this is the last few months. Now, he tells Peter then, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys control access. And so my understanding is that Peter opened the door to the Jews in Acts 2, to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And he says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You know, binding and loosing is basically saying what is okay and what's not permitted. And, you know, he's saying Peter's going to pass on the decisions that heaven has has instituted. Whatever you say on earth will be a reflection of what has been decided in heaven. So, Peter and the apostles taught the truth that basically bound and loose things. They were the standard of authority. They gave the pattern. That's why you could say in Ephesians 2 that the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. Or in Revelation 21.14, that the foundation stones of God's people are the twelve apostles. You know, they are the foundation. What they teach sets the standards and determines what's right and wrong. Not just Peter, but Peter in conjunction with the apostles. And only them. I think he's only talking to them here Though clearly in other passages, the prophets joined with the apostles in binding and loosing and revealing God's authority. The Old Testament prophets? The New Testament prophets. Such as? Such as Mark and Luke and James and Jude, etc. They weren't apostles. So you're saying only the writers? No, I'm just saying such as. But what about Agabus? And, you know... Uh, Those who were inspired to reveal God's will. Exactly. Like they had the gift of inspiration, perhaps? Yes, they had the gift of prophecy. To have the gift of prophecy means that the Spirit is giving you God's revelation. Ephesians really joins the prophets and apostles together a lot. Like in Ephesians 2.20, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In 3.5, the mystery in other generations was not made known to the sons of man as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Um, He mentions in 4.11 of Ephesians, he gave some apostles 
and some prophets. Um, you have also like Second Peter 3, 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Uh, so you just have several passages that bring together the work of the prophets and the apostles in, uh, you know, in the Revelation. And so, all right, other comments or questions through verse 19, or 20 really. In 20, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah yet. They didn't really understand it themselves. How could they be spreading the message to other people? Anything through verse 20? Is that why he said that? I think it's part of why he said it. Plus, he didn't want any premature revelation of his identity. But I think they'd have had a hard time revealing this very well since they didn't know what it really meant. This reminds me a lot of the vision in Daniel about God's kingdom. Like, being the lasting one and Yes, absolutely. What God decrees prevails. All right, uh, how about 21 to 28? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, so Jesus tells him plainly from this time forward what's going to happen to him. And he no notice he says in verse 21 that he must go to Jerusalem. This is not an option. <laughs> This is God's plan and purpose for him. And what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem? Suffer and be killed and be raised up. Now that's just pretty good summary of what happens there. But you know one of the most shocking things that he says in verse 21? Who is going to cause the suffering? The whole Jewish religious leadership is going to be combined against him. You, what a shock. You know, it's like saying he will suffer many things from the, from the faithful elders and deacons and evangelists or something like that. You know, I mean, to suffer from those guys, they reject him. Those would be the guys you'd expect to stand up for what was right. If you're rejected by them, you must be a real criminal, a real renegade. But that's what must happen. This is a part of God's plan. 
He must suffer many things by these guys, be killed, but then be raised up the third day. The disciples never seem to get past the being killed. <laughs> they never seem to really notice the being raised up because they can't accept the idea that he's going to die. In fact, what's Peter's attitude right there? Oh, he is horrified. No way. And he rebukes Jesus for the very idea. Now, how does Peter rebuke Jesus? What does he do? He uses God's name. Yes, but I'm thinking, what does he physically do? He takes him aside. He took him aside. Now, do you see the picture? You know, you've had Jesus in the conversation with the twelve about who do people say I am, who do you say I am, and what Jesus says. And then he tells them what's going to happen to him. And Peter says, no. You know, but Peter does it by taking him aside. Why did he do that? So he won't embarrass Jesus. Yes! Why would it embarrass Jesus? He's correcting him. Yes, he'd hate to show Jesus how he was wrong in front of all the others. That might be really embarrassing for him. What kind of attitude on, is that on Peter's part? Embarrassing for Peter. Yeah, it is. You know, wow. How presumptuous that he doesn't want to embarrass Jesus when he points out his mistake. You know, he doesn't want to do that in front of the other disciples. That would be kind of awkward for Jesus. Now, what had he just said about Jesus' identity? Verse 16? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So how does he think he's competent to correct the Son of God? Isn't that amazing how what in one breath he can say you're the Christ, the Son of God, and the next breath he's like, come here, Jesus, I need to, I need to straighten you out. That's just really amazing that he would do that. And uh, it's a pretty strong word when it says he began to rebuke him. Uh, let me show you a couple other passages where that word is used in Matthew. Look at 8.26 where Jesus got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and it became calm. It's the same word as what Jesus said to the winds and the sea. It's the same word used in 17.18 when Jesus rebuked the demon that would throw the boy into the fire and into the water trying to kill him, Jesus rebuked the demon and the demon came out of him. That's the word that's used for Peter correcting Jesus. I gather Peter really bawled him out. You know, he says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Don't you even think about that, Jesus. It won't happen. You've got to fulfill my agenda and my ambitions and goals for your glory. I think that's what Peter was thinking. No, no, this won't. No, it's not going to be like this. Do we ever, do we ever in, in essence, try to correct the Lord? Anytime we try to argue with what he says, we're really doing the same thing. What's Jesus' attitude? What does he say? Why does he call him Satan? That's really who was tempting him. Yes. Why? Why it, is Satan tempting 
Well, I mean, how is this a temptation for Jesus? Okay, look. You could see how you could, um, you would be reminded on how much pain you're going to go through. Yes. What's Jesus tempted to do? He didn't want to do it. Yeah. It's a temptation to Jesus not to go through with it. If, if Satan wanted to use somebody to tempt you, mm -hmm. who would be the most effective person for him to use? One close to you. Absolutely! He can more effectively use the person closest to you than anybody else, can't he? You know, think about it. So, Satan used Peter to try to discourage Jesus from doing what the Father had said. Now, Jesus just said, you are a stumbling block to me. That is, you are a temptation to me. And, and where does he tell Peter to get? Behind. Yes. I don't know about this. But when, when Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, and then Jesus in verse 23 said, turned and said to Peter, I've wondered if he was talking to Peter and he turned and said, get behind me, Satan. I'm wondering if he turned away from Peter and he sort of put Peter behind him. Because here's the thing. What should you do when you're being tempted? Absolutely. Isn't that what you need to do? Get as far away as fast as you can. So if this is a temptation, if this is a stumbling block, then what would you expect Jesus to do? Repel it. You know, get away from me. Get behind me. And, and what does he say Peter's real problem is? He's not setting his interest on God's. But on man's. That is, on his own ideas, his own inclinations, what he wants to happen. When we start thinking in terms of what we want and not in terms of what God wants, we're going to blow it just like Peter did. Does that make sense? You see that idea? Now, do you see... I want you to look at the comparison. Wait a minute. Do you think the other disciples... Heard Jesus talking to Peter? I think he did. So I think Peter they did, but I don't know that for sure. Privately, but then Jesus made it public. That I would say so, but I might be wrong about that. But that's what I've envisioned. Now look at the comparison between 17 and 23. Look at blessed are you versus get behind me, Satan. Look at, uh, well, really, this is, is verse 18. You are Peter, a rock. Now what does he call him in 23? He went from a rock to a block. <laughs> yeah, he's now not a rock but he's a, something you trip over. 
And who did he say revealed this to him in 17? My father. What's he setting his mind on in 23? Man's interest. He went from thinking about what God revealed to what he himself wanted. Boy, there's the downfall of Peter <laughs> in about five verses. Well, you also have the contrast in verse 17. Flesh and blood versus Father in heaven. And then yeah. man's interest in God. So. Yes, okay, good point. Yeah, not flesh and blood, but my Father. And, he and here, flesh and not blood. God's, but man's. Yeah, good point. Logan, did you have your hand up? No. Okay. All right. Comments and questions through 23. People today, I think Peter would be, was doing the same thing that some do today and saying, yeah, you're the Christ, you're going to be the king, but you're saying you're going to fail. And some today say that Jesus came, but he failed in what he came to do. So that, I mean, it makes sense to me what Peter's thinking. He's he's well, like, yeah, I'm the Christ and all this. That's that's great. And then he turns around, but the scribes, you know, the priests and all this are gonna put me to death. And Peter's like, no, we're not gonna let that happen because you're the Christ. Yes. That's the opposite of what you of what you just said. So we're gonna prevent that. They cannot envision a Christ that could suffer. That didn't fit with their picture of the Messiah. And you're right, that's what a lot of people think today. You know, when the Messiah comes in his glory, he can't suffer. He can't be rejected or crucified. Yeah. Other thoughts? Peter typically means well. I think he pretty much always means well. <laughs> but he mostly opens his mouth to uh, switch feet. <laughs> <laughs> you hadn't heard that one before? I don't think I had. Wow, that's old. Put your foot in your mouth and you say the wrong thing. Okay. So we open his mouth to switch feet. So every time he... Because he already had his foot in his mouth. That's right. Oh my. It was funny. You know, sometimes these things are so old that you can recycle them and they sound new. Does that mean you're so old? Because... <laughs> <laughs> no, he, need you. he just heard it from somebody that was old. <laughs> Get behind me, Ariel. Let's do it. My father, you know, was citing the words of his father and grandfather, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> no, he is old. <laughs> this is on recording. This is the year 2030, right? <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> but we don't know. In fact, it looks to me like there was a little bit of time that would have passed from verse 18 to verse 20. Yeah, I don't know how much So it's time. not like this was, you know, he said that and then five minutes later he said that. Mm, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe so. I don't really know. But, uh, but you know, however long it was, Peter hadn't changed his mind about Jesus being the Christ. But he didn't seem to feel any hesitation at telling the Christ, you know, where he got it wrong. He was comfortable with rebuking. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of scary. <laughs> 
when things don't fit what we think they ought to be, then we don't listen to the Lord. We try to correct the Lord when it's all said and done. Well, Jesus has made clear that there will be no Messiah without a cross. Now Jesus makes sure makes clear that there will be no disciples of the Messiah without a cross for them. You know, it's not just Jesus who's going to have to die. Look at verse 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, we must die to ourselves, deny ourselves, and take up the cross. You know, I mean, we've, we've been through this before, but taking up the cross means what? Dying. Why does it mean dying? Yes, and the criminal that was being led out to be crucified would take up his cross. He would carry it to the place of execution. So if you take up your cross, it's like you're going to die. That's the idea of this. You know, the cross in the first century was not gold-plated yet. <laughs> you know, uh, and, 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 and it doesn't mean... You know, when he says, if you want to be a follower of mine, take up your cross... He doesn't mean putting up with an annoying roommate or having to live with an ingrown toenail or something like that. He means being willing to die. You know, giving our life to the Lord. You know, just just devoting ourselves to God and not living for ourselves anymore. That's what it really takes. And so, I mean, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to do what I've done. You've got to die. And then, you know, a lot of people are keen on finances. So Jesus just puts it into a profit and loss thing. You know, what profit does a man have if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You know, I mean, if it comes to profit and loss, what if you got everything and you lost your soul? How would that be? Really dumb. You know, that'd be, wow. So, be willing to give everything to the Lord. This is so much more than just a comfortable, convenient Christianity. This is dedicating our lives to the Lord. Comments through verse 26. I think that um, in crucifying ourselves, that's kind of... It's being, being willing to die physically, but it's also dying um, to sin daily. We have to daily carry that cross... And whenever we're thinking about sin or whenever we've sinned, we need to die to that sin and live with Christ. Yeah, it, it's almost more than that. It's really the idea that I have killed myself and I don't live in me anymore. Jesus does. So it's the idea that I have sacrificed my own agenda, my own goals, my own desires, my own living for me. I die and Jesus controls me. That's really the idea. That may then mean I will die physically, but 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 I if well, I must die before I ever would die physically, in the sense that I don't live for me anymore. Thoughts. 
he talks about his glory. You know, he says, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. You know, so you'd better be faithful. I'm coming back and I will come in my glory and I'll have my army and everybody's going to get what's coming to them. Be ready. And then he says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, that's such a controversial text. What does he mean? You know, some of those who are standing here will not, t- who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It does not look to me like you could take that verse as applying 1,000 years later or 2,000 years later. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he says some of you guys won't die. Well, then what does he mean when he says, you know, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? Well, there's all kinds of ideas about that. I think he's probably referring to the next event. That he's probably talking about how three of them were going to see the glory of his kingship shown in the transfiguration. And that that was sort of a foreshadowing of his true glory. It may be that some of them would see this here as kind of a symbol of his greater glory that would be shown throughout time and ultimately in the end. But since he only took three of them with him, I suspect that's why he says there's some of those who are standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Look at 2 Peter 2 a minute. Because Peter talks about the impact that the transfiguration had on him. He says in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So I suspect that that Peter is referring to what Jesus said, they will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They saw the power and coming of Jesus as it was revealed in the transfiguration in the next section. Now there are lots of other possibilities and I would not be dogmatic about that, but I think that's the most natural explanation of this statement. Comments and questions? So did the transfiguration happen very shortly after this? Six days. Okay. Then does it seem a little funny that he says you won't die until you see it? It's not like It'll be years later when, you know what I mean? Like, You're going to see this in your lifetime, and it was really just a week later, but it was just three of them that went. Okay. It says some of you won't die, so the others, there might be some that will die in that time? Yeah, well, some of them who are standing here will not taste death until they see it. Others oh. weren't going to see it. 
So they would taste death before they saw it. That's right. Because <laughs> they wouldn't see it. All right. Yes. Okay. Only three of them saw it. Only three of them caught a glimpse. I got that, but what Cameron says makes some sense. I know that's scary. But <laughs> that's a first. So would the coming in his kingdom also refer to something later for the ones that might see it after they've tasted death? Well, I think there were other manifestations of Jesus' glory and kingdom. But I don't think they're primarily what Jesus is referring to. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which Jesus shows his glory as king. In various events events that happened after that. But I suspect he was, you know, thinking at least primarily of this specific glory of his coming kingdom. But, but the fact that there are other ways in which Jesus showed the glory of his kingship makes it difficult to be sure whether this is the way he has in mind. But since this is the next thing he narrates, and it's the same thing in uh, Mark, and I think maybe the same in Luke, then that seems pretty likely to me. That's a minority it is a minority view, probably, especially among brethren. Yeah, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three, though that statement is right before the transfiguration. Would most people say the church? Man, I'm not sure there's a consensus. If it's not this view, you've got some people saying that it's the coming of the Messiah, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You'd have some people saying it was the manifestation of Jesus' kingly glory and the destruction of Jerusalem. You'd have some people saying it was just the gradual triumph of the gospel through the first century. Those are at least three positions. I'm not. Sh- I think the. I think either Pentecost or the destruction of Jerusalem would be the majority view among brethren. I'm not sure which one. But all of them would not have tasted death till the day of Pentecost. Well, the only one that would have tasted death before the day of Pentecost would have been Judas. Oh, that's true. I mean, Pentecost would have just been six or eight months later, probably. Right, so I'm saying it makes but sense. But that's the that only thing that makes me think that the Transfiguration seems a little... I mean, well, Pentecost I doesn't help happen. much either, does it? Except Judas is gone. Yeah. Because I wouldn't say, you know, something's happening next week, that you're going to get to see this. Some of you aren't going to taste death until something happens next week, because I wouldn't assume that you're going to die next week, between now and next week. Sort of like that, that, does that make Unless sense? after the death would the others have seen God's glory in heaven, like later on in heaven would they be able to see Christ's glory, and then some would be able to see Christ's glory before they die, and then probably after they die too, but then yeah. some would not be able to see it until after they die. Would that be it? I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's a tough passage. Jesus has so many of these kind of cryptic statements. I mean, one of the things I think we're supposed to see in this, you know, we debate the question of what he's talking about. But what's his point here? Well, his point is to show his coming glory. You know, he talks about his suffering. He talks about being killed. 
and raised up. He talks about what the disciples are going to have to do as they have to take up their cross and lose their life for his sake. But all of this will be greatly rewarded for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there's some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You know, so his point is, there is great glory coming for the Son of Man. He's going to die and be killed, but you'd better, you'd better die with him, and you'd better be a disciple of his, because he's coming in his glory, and some of you are going to see some of that glory of his kingdom. Look. Could his glory be dying on the cross? Well, there's a sense in which that was his glory. But I don't think that's what he means here. But there is a sense in which he was glorified in his death. I know you like, don't like defending viewpoints you don't take, but why would people say this is the destruction of Jerusalem if it's talking about his glory? Well because it talks about him coming in his kingdom and say in Luke 21 where Jesus speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem he says so you also when you see these things happening recognize that the kingdom of God is near that's Luke 21 31 so there's a sense in which he showed his kingly power he showed his kingly glory when he destroyed Jerusalem. That was a manifestation of his dominion and his kingship. So in a sense, that was a glory to him and that was a coming of his kingly power. The destruction of Jerusalem view isn't just totally ridiculous, but again, to me, it takes this out of its context. So are 27 and 28 two different events? Well, I think they are, but I think 28, they're going to see his, his coming. Uh, you know, he, he's going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and repay every man according to his deeds. You know, that's what's going to happen, but some of them are going to see his coming in his kingdom before they even die. You know, not, I don't think he means verse 27, but I think they're going to see his kingly glory. You know, so I think the, the glimpse they get in verse 28 is kind of a confirmation of what's going to happen in verse 27. Some of you are even going to see it. You're going to see what this glory is like that I'm going to come back and, and repay everybody according to his deeds. With. Typically, typically verse 27, I think by perhaps the majority of, of studious brethren would be taken as the destruction of Jerusalem. But I am not convinced that's the case. I would rather take verse 27 as a reference to his final coming in the glory of his Father with his angels when he, in the judgment day, repays everybody according to his deeds. I mean, I think that fits with 26. 26 is, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So it's like, man, this has eternal consequences what you decide for notice everything starts with a four 25 26 27 for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds 
So, you know, is it worth it to gain the whole world and then get repaid according to your deeds? There's controversy on 26. Oh, yeah. I think the majority would say this is the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, that seems easy. Yeah. Well, they would connect, a lot of them would connect it with 28 and say it had to happen in their lifetime. But I take verse 28 as a separate statement. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And you go back to me. You know, I go back to Second Peter and see how Peter looked at it. And he says, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So I think Peter saw this as a glimpse of his glory and kingly coming, what he saw on the mountain. Like I say, I'm really not dogmatic about that, but because this is not a common view among brethren especially, it's necessary to kind of defend it a little bit. Among commentators, it's probably, a, you know, at least a pretty significant minority that would hold that view. Among brethren, I don't know many people who do. Well, I'd never heard that before, though, this transfiguration. Yeah. It may be wrong, but man, to me, anything else I go to is a lot harder to explain and defend. This, six days later. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, etc. To me, you know, they didn't have chapter and verse divisions back then. So to me, this just flowed. And, and what do you know, six days later, he takes three of them, and what do they see? <laughs> and to me, this glory they see on the Mount of Transfiguration meant more than just what they saw there. To me, this is seeing his true kingly glory. They're almost catching a preview. This is like, you know, those movie trailers. You know, this is what's coming. You know, this is what's coming. This is what they're seeing. They're seeing something really more significant as to who Jesus is becoming. Maybe who he really is in his internal glory. I don't know. Anybody else want to offer an opinion or contrary opinion? Or? I've always wondered too if it couldn't be, I mean, just as simple as Jesus after his resurrection. You know, he is then in his kingdom, so at any point, I don't know, you know if that separate, that appears to be separate from 27, even in that, because right. I don't see it where he's coming with his angels and, and whatever. Right. Right. Yeah, I think 27 and 28 are two different things. I think they're related, but I don't think they're the same thing. And yeah, I mean, you've got some of those statements in John even, where I'm coming to you. I'm going away and then I'm coming to you. And we struggle with those statements. He's coming to them how? Does this mean his resurrection appearances? Does this mean his coming in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Or is this some other coming to them? Several of those things are not all that easy, you know, to interpret. Well, let's look at this, uh, 17, 1 to 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as snow, or as white as light. 